My name is Victoria Carr. And my name is Olat Monpeo. And you're listening to the Researcher's Code podcast, where we interview women who are pushing the boundaries of tech in scientific research. Uh, my name is Alexandra. I'm a third year PhD student in perinatal imaging and health. And my work focuses on the relationship between maternal depression and early brain development. Um, but when I don't work on my PhD, which is um, more often than I'd like, um, I like to try and pursue my interest in open science. Great. Okay. So what is open science? Um, so I think you started with a, with a pretty difficult question. Um, I think my favorite definition is something that I actually saw on a sticker on someone's laptop, um, which said that open science is just, you know, science done right. So I think there's a lot of room for improvement in the way that we currently do science. So I guess all that open science is trying to do is to, in a way, make sure that um, the scientific process and the claims of the scientific process are reproducible, transparent and accessible to others. And there's a bunch of different ways that you can achieve that. Why do you think it's important for scientists to be more open and to pursue open science? So I think um, the way that things are done right now is not really working. And I think we all know that in one way or another. We know that research that produces, you know, novel results and statistically significant results and, you know, results that follow some sort of narrative are more likely to be published. So because um, the way science, the, the way the reward system in science works at the moment is that we promote novel science over replications, this means that we have hundreds and thousands of publications that, you know, uh, claim novel results, but they don't actually get replicated. And uh, very recently, we've had uh, more attempts of replicating previous research from uh, Open Science Consortia. And I know some of them have claimed that, you know, as much as 85% of biomedical research is not replicable. So if someone tries to do the same thing with the same methodology, they're not getting the same results. So obviously, the consequences of those are quite are quite dire, especially in the context of medical and biomedical research. So we know that the current system incentivizes, you know, fast science as opposed to good science. So I think it's important that we find a way to do things differently and to do things better. And especially as early career researchers, um, you know, we need to we need to publish a lot to be able to get a job and pay our rent and do all that when we when we graduate. But by needing to publish a lot, we often, you know, are under quite a lot of pressure to get that magical value of P under 0 0.05. And it's a lot of stress and it's a lot of unhappiness. And it would be it would be good if we all collectively as scientists try to find a way to, to make that whole process easier and better both for ourselves and, and for science. So Alex, do you think it's a current problem or was it there before? I think reproducibility in itself has always been an issue, but I think um, the pressure has continued to increase. So I know, you know, if you're a biologist, you, if you have a PhD in biology, people now finishing their PhDs have nearly twice as much 
uh, as many publications as they did 10 years ago. Wow. And I know in um, certain countries in East Asia, I think China is one of them, they actually reward financially researchers for publishing in certain journals like uh, Science or Nature. So obviously the um, kind of incentives for for um, getting these results are increasing. But I think another thing is that historically there have been quite few opportunities to make your work accessible even if you wanted to. So I think now we're, you know, have have had a culture shift. So now open science practices have started to be promoted. So with increases in technology, we can now um, make our code openly available. Or we can make our data openly available. And I think that, you know, opens us up for scrutiny as well. Maybe is it because it's, it's just not the same um, data set? Is it because maybe the individuals made mistakes because scientists are... People. So people make mistakes and they say, oh, we did this and maybe at the end they didn't. I think, I, think that's, I think that's a great question. And I think it's probably most likely a combination of different factors. When, when it comes to the mistakes, you know, we're all, we're all people, we all make mistakes. But I think in order to improve the culture of science, we need to make a shift from kind of correcting misunderstandings to um, rewarding kind of people coming forward. So I think one of the um, one of the positive aspects of it is that uh, recently there has been quite a lot of funding allocated from big funders such such as the Wellcome Trust specifically for replication and for um, research that promotes open science practices. So the from my point of view the idea of science should be that we we shouldn't just trust a finding a singular finding it should be a collection of findings pointing towards the same thing can you explain to us what p hacking is and what does it consist of so because we place so much value on this magical threshold of p of less than 0.05 as as i said we're under a lot of pressure to get our results to um to be under this value. And that pressure is coming from, you know, PIs, from funders, from universities, because we know that it's very difficult to publish null results. But the idea of p-hacking is that you analyze your data, and, and it's not often, you know, something that you're doing on purpose, but you analyze your data in different ways to get this value of points under 0. 0.05 so that your results are publishable. It just makes me think of like how many times, you know, because for instance, sometimes I've been doing some analysis and, and if it's null, if I don't get any like significant 0.0, and, you know, um, under 0.05, I just forget about like that study or that disease or that phenotype or whatever. And then sometimes I'm thinking like, oh my God, like research something sometimes is so slow and I cannot imagine like how much money and how much time people are looking at the same stuff. It's, it's probably one of the biggest issues that we have right now is that, you know, there's there's so much pressure on people getting, you know, the right results that anything that doesn't reach that threshold just gets put aside and doesn't get published. Uh, I think that's a huge issue primarily in terms of, you know, waste of resources, both financial resources, but also, you know, intellectual. Um, there are people coming up with the same study over and over again. What I think is 
starting to a bit solve this issue is the um, the fact that people have started to use resources such as BioArchive and MedArchive to actually record um, null results. And I think Daniel Lakens was saying at some point that people seem to be concerned that papers with null results are not going to get a lot of attention. But in fact, he said that he published a paper with null results on BioArchive and it was downloaded more than 250 times in a few weeks. So people clearly do care about null results. It's just a question of trying to do our best to put them out there. So how did you get into open science? What was your journey? So um, it was actually about a year ago now, so it was last, last April, that I went to the British Neuroscience Association conference in Dublin. And I, at that point, did not know anything about open science. But I happened to walk into a seminar where all the you know big names like Marcus Minafo and Verena Heise were talking about the reproducibility crisis. And it wasn't something I knew much about, but I just happened to be in that seminar. And I think hearing them speak with so much passion and hearing the fact that, yes, there are these big problems that science is facing, but there are also solutions um, was quite encouraging. So I think at that point, as you know, a lot of PhD students probably are, I was a bit disillusioned with science. And I think I walked out of that seminar feeling a bit like, oh, I can, you know, maybe I can contribute to making things a bit better. I didn't really have the courage to approach them with questions after the seminar, but I ended up um, actually DMing Marcus Munafo on Twitter and just asking him, you know, how I can get involved. And that was just the start of it, I guess. What kind of practices or examples did you did you use um, to do better research? So I actually I think one of the one of the most helpful Part of my journey was attending a course by the UK Reproducibility Network in January this year, um, where I managed to learn more about, you know, what open science actually entails. And I think I think what I learned from it is that it's, you know, it's an umbrella term and it's covering so many different aspects that I think often we get stuck on what we can't do and we just reject the concept completely. We say, oh, I can't share my data because of this reason. So I'm just not going to practice open science at all. Um, so I think it's important to focus on what you can do. So for I'll, I'll give you one example. In my research, I initially got really excited about it and I said, I'm going to do a pre-registration. And for, for people who don't know what that means, it just... The idea would be that you publish your protocol and say what you're about to do in terms of data collection and data analysis in quite a lot of detail. And you publish that online before you start data collection. And the, obviously, the advantage of that is that there's a record of what your plan is before you start data collection. And I got really excited and I said, you know, I'm going to do that because it's, it's amazing. And I slowly realized that I actually can't because my work is really exploratory. Um, and I didn't actually know what I'm doing. So I think that was just a good example of the fact that, you know, it's it's a very pick and choose um, sort of thing. It's not that everything works for works for everyone. So how have you tried to promote open science to others? And with that, what resources um, have you recommended? So um, as soon as I, as soon as I, you know, 
uh, when came back from the BNA conference, I contacted um, Dr. Sam Westwood, who's leading the Riot Science Club, um, which stands for Reproducible, Interpretable, Open and Transparent Science. And it's a seminar series taking part primarily at Denmark Hill campus, which just provides training in open science practices. Um, so I got in touch with him and then we have recently uh, expanded the Riots Club to St. Thomas Hospital so that, you know, it's more accessible to people who are uh, located in central London as well. And also, um, I also got in touch with the UK Reproducibility Network and co-authored an open science primer on pre-registration and registered reports, which was an absolutely amazing um, learning opportunity. You you also mentioned um, what resources I would recommend to others. I think the as a starting point, I would really, really recommend reading um, Marcus's paper, A Manifesto for Reproducible Science, because I think it summarizes everything really, really well. And the, um, if you if you want to know more in terms of practical advice, the UK Reproducibility Network has a great series of primers on things like pre-registration, open access, data sharing, open code. Um, and also, also, I was just thinking now, the, um don't know if you know the Daniel Lakens' stats course on Coursera, which is free. And I think, I think people don't really think of stats a lot when they think of open science, but I think kind of improving your methodology and understanding statistics more is also at the base of it. So I would, I would really recommend that as well. Cool. So you mentioned um, that you wrote some uh, primers uh, for the UK Reproducibility Network um, on pre-registration. And um, so could you just uh, describe what these are a bit in a bit more detail and how this could benefit someone who is looking to, to start research for the first time? I, I contributed to the um, UKRN primer on pre-registration and registered reports without actually having ever done um, either of those, which I think was an absolutely great learning opportunity. And it's going to kind of help me and hopefully others do better science in the future. So the idea around uh, pre-registration is that currently there's quite a big contradiction between what's best for science, which is high quality research, regardless of outcome, and what's best for researchers, which is, you know, producing a lot of great results and being under a lot of pressure to do that. So a pre-registration is simply an online record of decisions around, you know, data collection and analysis before data collection. So that can just be on an online repository, such as the Open Science Framework or Protocols IO, I think is another one. Whereas uh, registered reports is a more kind of formal process. It's uh, submitting your paper before data collection. So you go through peer review before data collection and you get something called in principle acceptance, which means that you can go ahead and collect your data. And on the condition that you don't deviate from your protocol, your paper will be accepted regardless of result. So that brings the focus back on the quality of your science rather than on whether your result was you know positive or negative and with these registered reports are they um, peer reviewed by a select committee or is it open um, to the scientific community so yes they are they are reviewed in the same way that you know regular articles would be reviewed I think most of the time the reviewers that um, have a look at your initial submission are actually end up being the reviewers that um, 
review your final submission after data collection and analysis as well. So it's quite it's quite nice. It feels a lot more, as far as I understand, a lot more like a collaborative process between you and the reviewers because I think one of the you know issues that we have at the moment is that we get to the point of peer review. We submit we submit our paper and then the reviewers say, you know, this is wrong, you shouldn't have done it like this. And at that point there's not much you can do. Um, you can't turn back time and do things differently. So I think this is where, and, and this is why I think this is an absolutely brilliant idea because you get your feedback at the point where it matters, which is before you start your data collection. And I know, I know from Chris uh, several examples in which uh, reviewers have actually contributed so much that they've actually become authors. So they've they've kind of backed off from the the point of being a reviewer and have kind of collaborated on the project instead. Great, that's really interesting. And sort of what publications um, are buying into registered reports? So um, quite a, quite a lot of big journals have now started to support um, registered reports. One of them being uh, Cortex. So Chris Chambers is doing a lot of work on this. Others that I I know there's um there's a list uh somewhere available, but some that I know of are um, the Royal Society Open Science, um, Nature Human Behavior, European Journal of Neuroscience, Brain and Behavior. So quite quite a lot of the big ones have started to to do that, and I think what's been what's been really interesting is that so far with the research that has been published so far as a registered report the hypotheses have actually been around five times more likely to be unsupported in registered reports compared to regular articles. So it actually shows quite a bit the, you know, bias that we have in the current literature. You know, we all talk about how great open access is, but when you have smaller universities and smaller research groups, they might not be able to afford that, um, which is an issue that is important to consider. Um, I think BioArchive is a really good um, resource for that. And I think a lot of people don't actually know, but you can publish things. That you, if you've published um, an article in a journal, I think most journals are fine with you publishing a slightly earlier version of that. Uh, so kind of before before um, the last version uh, on BioArchive. So you can make it openly available without necessarily having to pay if that's something that your department can afford. And I think on top of that, a lot of funders have actually started to um, pay for open access charges as part of the funding that they provide to research groups. I, and I have a question for you, like a, like a personal one. What is your your weakest point or in, in the way you, you, do, you do science? I think it's... You know, we all we all have a lot of imposter syndrome as it is. And I think open science kind of activates that a bit more because you're like, oh, everything I'm doing is wrong. And it's a bit it's a bit scary to begin with. Um, you know, when it comes to when it comes to open code, I started learning R and I was so excited about, you know, writing my first script and making it openly available. And I think now that I'm actually doing it, I'm absolutely terrified of putting it online and having it up for scrutiny to the whole world to see my mistakes but I think there's a good thing about that because I think it maybe makes you check your work twice which maybe you would not do if you didn't have to put it online and show it to the world cool 
I couldn't agree more with that. Oh. <laughs> I remember putting I remember putting the code for my paper up for the first time. Oh my god, I was I was so I felt so sick, honestly. Yeah. I was so but nervous. You've done, but you've done it. <laughs> but I've done it, yeah, exactly. Awesome. So awesome. <laughs> so you just reminded me of that trauma. <laughs> but no. Um but I think yeah, definitely made me check. Yeah. Triple check. Exactly. Quadruple check. <laughs> but I think you're, you know, you're more likely to actually do it if you know that people are gonna gonna scrutinize it. Because when you even use SPSS, no one actually knows how you got to those results. A lot of researchers are a bit wary of open science, um, that it might not benefit their career, even hinder it. So what are the benefits of um, going forward with open science to researchers? So I think that I think that's a really good question, um, because clearly, you know, we would love to think that we do what we do for, you know, the benefit of society and to to make science better. But the truth is that we all need a job and need to, you know, progress in our careers. Um, So we obviously need to think a bit selfishly about it as well. Um, on that note, Florian Markovets has a really, really good paper called uh, Five Selfish Reasons to Work Reproducibly, which I would really recommend. But in short, um, as far as I know, open science publications get more citations and get more media coverage. There have been quite a lot of um, initiatives starting from funders, so a lot of funding that's being allocated specifically for researchers who practice open science. I know universities, I know Bristol is one of them, have started to include open science practices in hiring and promotion criteria. And I think I think just overall, there's just a shift in starting to do that a bit more. Um, you know, the Declaration of Research Assessment, uh, DORA, it has actually started recommending that institutions stop using journal metrics, so things like journal impact factors, to evaluate research. Um, for things like promotion and tenure decisions and instead focus on research content. So I think overall the um, the way in which we do science is changing and I think it's just a very good time to be a scientist and to be a part of this. You are listening to the Researchers Code podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify or whatever podcasting platform you use. Also, if you could give us a rating, that would be really helpful for other people finding us.